Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from our Savior, God. The God who has your life well in hand, always has, always will. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, it's time for another installment of silly warning labels. Thankfully, manufacturers have not been idle. First is a warning on a pill bottle that reads, may cause drowsiness, use care when operating a car. Sounds perfectly reasonable until you recognize that it's on a bottle of dog medicine. Is that really a problem? The label on a wheelbarrow warns consumers not for highway use. The new Razor scooter is emblazoned with a sticker that says, warning, this product moves when used. The warning on a package of fireplace logs, caution, fire hazard. And finally, a perfectly reasonable warning, caution, this product has been found to cause cancer in lab mice, except that it's on a package of rat poison. Now, you, you wonder, you step back and wonder why manufacturers feel the need. I could come up with four possible explanations on why they feel the need to put such inane warning stickers on products. One, they think we're stupid. Two, we are that stupid. Three, well, they have a sense of humor. And four, their lawyers made them do it. I suspect it's the last. Their lawyers made them do it to protect them in case somebody actually did or some, for some reason found it necessary to do what they warned not to do. Why else would a manufacturer affix a safety goggles recommended sticker to a letter opener. Uh, does anybody really get that rambunctious when opening a letter? Well, now if they do, the manufacturer is protected. And you understand, we're, we're, we bring these up for a point. They sound stupid. They sound silly, pointless. But I wonder how God sees us when we do similarly dumb things. Because it is a basic truth that most warnings, maybe even, are not so much for the person to whom the warning is directed, but for the one doing the warning. It's true with manufacturers, it's true with parents, isn't it? Most of the parent-child warnings are for our sake, for the parents' sake. We just feel better, more comfortable, more reassured if we send off our loved ones with the be careful or drive safely. Do you, do you really think you were all children once? Some of you still are, no matter what your age is. Did that really make a difference for you? You were having a good time with your friends and suddenly you decided, wait a minute, mom and dad told me to be careful. I better be careful. But parents feel better about it, don't we? We feel better. This morning we're going to examine a, a theme 
that should arguably never need to be articulated because we should never have any doubts or questions or err in connection with God and not God. It just seems so self-evident. And yet my prayer is that not one of us would leave here this morning without recognizing how often I, you, need to be reminded of this obvious fact that there is one God and it's not me. The text that will guide us this morning is found in Matthew's Gospel, the 14th chapter, beginning with the 22nd verse. Immediately he, that is Jesus, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is God's Word. Far from silly or pointless or inane, these are the words of life. Asking our God to, through this Word of God, His Word, strengthen, comfort, encourage us this morning, so we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your Word is truth. Amen. I have little doubt that a discussion about who is and who is not God would seem to you to be sort of pointless, but bear with me. While there is much in this life that is silly and unnecessary, this is not one of them. By way of explanation, we first joined the disciples in their storm-tossed little boat on the Sea of Galilee at the point where they believe they've just seen a ghost. There's a couple of reasons we shouldn't be too hard on them. First of all, the word ghost can also be translated apparition. So they saw an apparition, something they didn't understand, and it frightened them. Now, put yourselves in their shoes. They're battling, trying to row against the wind in a storm, and we read, we're told that storms on the Sea of Galilee could come up suddenly and were very violent. So they're battling this storm, and they see 
something coming toward them walking on the water. I would imagine you and I would be somewhat apprehensive. We would find that also to be somewhat disconcerting. And they cried out in fear. Set that aside for a little bit and ask yourself, before they saw that, what were they thinking? What do you imagine they were doing? These were men of God, and they were in peril. Don't you suppose that they were petitioning their God for deliverance in their hour of need, in their moment of peril? I would imagine. And yet they're surprised when he answers. Or maybe more accurately, they're surprised at the answer. Should they have been? What happened just before this is that Jesus had fed the thousands with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. So he had demonstrated to them again his power. And it's inconceivable that in their hour of need they didn't long for Jesus to be with them, to exert that power on their behalf and still the storm or protect them. And yet, when he comes, they're surprised. I bet you've heard that in your life. Maybe you've heard that from yourself. That people, or yourself, you're actually surprised when you pray and your prayers answered in the affirmative. Have you heard people exclaim, my prayers actually worked, as though they're surprised. This leads us to the first question raised by our text. Because we want to apply this to ourselves. So the first question we ask of ourselves is, what is it for which you are actually praying when you petition your God for something? You're in peril, you're in need, you're sick, you're facing surgery, you're facing some other hardship in life. What is it that you're really looking for from your God? It's a difficult question. It's one that we need to apply to ourselves, to ask of ourselves as we go through life. Because what we'll find often, maybe more often than not, sadly, is that we forget who that one God is and that it's not me. Because we ask God to help me accomplish when we should be asking God to fix. Now understand, we play a role. That doesn't mean that we just, well, there's weeds in my garden. Please, Lord, get rid of those weeds for me. And yet so often we think that God must empower me instead of God solve. And we're surprised when God's solution is something that we didn't expect. I am not God. You are not God. And yet more times than we care to admit, we trust in ourselves more than we trust in God's deliverance. The next striking aspect in our text is, of course, the fact that Peter walked on water. Peter gets lambasted here because he began to sink. 
Now, we've talked about this before. It's the height of hypocrisy to condemn Peter unless you've walked on water yourself successfully for a prolonged period of time. The faith of Peter here is astounding. What we want to examine is how, why it began to fail. Notice, first of all, that Peter recognized that faith isn't just blind, that you can't just have faith in what you want to be true. Faith has an object. Faith has, must rest upon a promise from God. So did you notice what Peter did first? He didn't just jump out. He did that later, by the way, didn't he? After Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus was standing by the lake, it's the Lord, John said. Peter took off his outer garment, jumped in. But here, and he sunk, by the way, he had to swim. But here, he first asked for the Lord's command, understanding that we can trust God's command, but we can't trust what God has never promised. So he says, Lord, tell me to come out, and I'll come out to you on the water. Jesus says simply, come. And Peter takes him at his word and walks on water. It's astounding. What we want to know is what caused his failure? Now our text says that when he saw the wind and the waves, he began to sink. But what was the root cause? What lay at the base of that error, that failure of Peter's? He looked at the threat instead of at the deliverer. And that's what caused him to fail. He recognized his own inability. That played a role, of course. But when he looked at the threat and recognized himself as a fallible, frail human being, he began to fail. When did he again succeed? When he turned his gaze to the only one who is God. Now, we know that's true. We know that Peter got back on the right path because our text tells us immediately when he began to fail, he shifted his focus and said, Lord, save me. And you heard the results. Jesus did. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. I would give Peter high marks here, wouldn't you? He had the faith to walk on water, and then he had the presence of mind or the grace from his God to be able to turn to Jesus when he needed Jesus to refocus there. And yet Jesus didn't give him high marks, did he? In fact, he used that, that one Greek word, translated in two words, called him a little faith, and interestingly, that's a term that Jesus reserved for use with his disciples. That's the only time he used the form of the word. Little faith. Little faith? What would Jesus say to you and me? What would he say to us if he were standing right in front of us? What would he say to me every time I forget God and not God. Every time I failed to look to him, to trust him, to turn to him with every need, 
not as a last resort, not to make me feel better about my chances. Okay, I, I, I'm having trouble with this, so I'm going to cover all my bases. I'll get God on board, and I'll maybe get my family members on board, and I'll see this thing through. And then we start to sink. What all of this teaches us, again, is how great is that gap between God and us. Immeasurably immense. We need to come to terms with that because our tendency is to bring God down to our level in so many different ways. We want something. We ask God. We don't get it, and we're resentful. Instead of, thank you, God. You know what's best. Always. You love me. You promised not to withhold anything that's good for me, so in saying no, you're teaching me something, you're preventing some harm, you're doing what you alone knows is best for me. Thank you. We're bringing down to our level and imagine that if I see something as good, as necessary, God must. Can't tell you how many different ways on a day-to-day -day basis you and I will find that we do that in our prayers, in our dealing with others, in so many different ways. So it sounds so self-evident, God and not God, and yet we find it so hard to stay in our lane and not drift over. Do I know the, the biggest reason why that's critically important? Because Jesus never lost faith and trust in his Father. Why is that so important? Because Jesus had to be perfect in every way. And understand what he was up against. The, the waves of apprehension and terror must have beat against him his whole life because he knew what was coming. And it was not just he had to look forward to nails and a cross and spear and spit and a crown of thorns, physical pain. He knew that he was going to have to carry the sum total of the world's sin, bear the punishment for all of our sin and carry that to the cross, and that he would be abandoned by his heavenly Father. And he carried that every single day. And the sum total of all the wrath of evil beat against this man, just overclouded him with apprehension with the temptation to apprehension and fear. Is there another way? Well, Satan just told me that I can have all this if I just worship him. And yet not once did Jesus fail. And that's critically important because had he failed just once, all would have been lost. All of us condemned because nothing less than a perfect, sinless, holy sacrifice would be a sufficient payment for our sins. And that's exactly what Jesus offered. Not God. God. And that Son of God offered that perfect life on the cross and God the Father, God, declared the sum total of the world's sin to have been paid. And then, as we heard in that New Testament reading, that becomes ours not by doing, 
but simply by believing what the Bible tells us, that is ours through faith. Paul talked about Moses, and he wrote about how if you do all the things right, you will live by them. But God gave us this new righteousness, the righteousness he provides. I can't earn, I can't be perfect because I've already failed. Jesus did not. This represents the greatest reason why we need to let God be God. Because you and I could never have paid the bill. We don't have any currency to do that. We don't have any ability. We can't correct what is broken, make right what we did wrong. And then we find so many other areas in our lives where we need to stay in our lane and let God do what only God can do. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? God, if you will just do this, then I will. God doesn't work that way. Have you ever spent the night filled with anxiety or apprehension about not what happened, but what you fear might happen, and worried about things over which you have absolutely no control? That's you and me drifting into God's lane. And God says, cast all your cares upon me. God, not God. Cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. Let me do it because I can. You cannot preserve your loved ones by worry and anxiety. Because you're not God, but God can. He can preserve them. He does preserve them. So pick an aspect of your life where there's trouble. Money, marriage, children. God, not God. Carry it to the one who still has power over wind and wave. Nor should we restrict these things to the secular, they're most important, most critical in the spiritual. And there again, learn from Peter. Peter, recognizing his own deficiency and experiencing failure, what did he do? He turned to his Lord and said, Lord, save me. Do you have sins? Pet sins are called, things that you do over and over again, things where you have to say like Paul did, the good I want to do, I don't do, the evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Are you playing God thinking that you can handle that, that you can make it better, that you can fix it? Turn to the God and say, Lord, save me also from this. Yours is the power. What a tremendous comfort this is intended to give to each of us. And our God wants us to take full advantage of it. Not only can't you take responsibility for those for which God alone is responsible, 
God makes it clear that he is well pleased when you obey his command to simply be still and know that I am God. Acknowledge the powerful, capable, glorious presence of your God. Hear him speak to you as he did to the disciples. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The God who sacrificed his own son will never, could never, let you down. Amen.